Welcome to Money Isn't Scary, a podcast for women to explore our fears around money and inspire each other to be financially empowered. I'm Megan Dwyer, and I'm making it my personal mission to remove the taboo around money and help women rewrite their stories so they can stop staying small and begin to live life on their terms. In this show, we get real and uncomfortable as we unpack our beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors that aren't serving us anymore. I can't wait for you to join me on this journey. So let's dive in. Hi, you guys. Welcome to today's episode of the Money Isn't Scary podcast. Before I get into today's episode, I just wanted to acknowledge that Money Isn't Scary turns one today. So for fun, I looked back at a notebook that I have where I kind of coached myself into starting the podcast in the first place. And what I found was a list that I had put together of all the reasons why I shouldn't start the podcast. Silly things like I don't have time to do this and keep it up. Um, I don't have anything of value to say. Everyone will think that I'm stupid. All things that my mind makes up just to resist. It's human nature, right? The closer you get to how you actually want to feel, the more you move away from it. Our brains want to keep us safe, so they convince us that we shouldn't do things that are out of our comfort zone, when in reality, the very act of doing the thing outside of our comfort zone is exactly what we need. So I'm glad that I decided to push through that resistance and start the podcast anyway, because here I am, a year later, having fun and making an impact for people. And that's all I ever wanted to do. The cool thing too is that the podcast is nothing like I thought it would be when I started planning this. I had all this stuff planned out in my head and then when I actually went to do it, it just didn't feel right. So I'm literally, and I love this phrase, I'm building the engine as I'm flying the plane and it's been fun. So today on the show, I'm sharing my conversation with Casey Aaron Clark and Julie Fogg co-founders of Vital Voice Training. Casey and Julie are awesome. With their backgrounds as actors and voice coaches, they approach many of the recurring themes that I talk about here on the show, like confidence and authenticity, from a very different side of the table. Yet, we get to similar points. It's fascinating to hear their perspectives on how our voices are actually a very powerful tool of expression and communication, and what it actually means to use our authentic voice. All right, so who are Casey and Julie? Casey Erin Clark is a professional actress who, after 18 months on tour with Les Mis, read the book Half the Sky and got very fired up about issues facing women in the world today. The answer to what can I do came out of her passion for the human voice. Casey co-founded Vital Voice Training, a voice and speech coaching company on a mission to change the conversation about what women are supposed to sound like and empower everyone to own the power of their full vocal instrument and presence. She also teaches singing to pros and amateurs of all ages. She's performed at the 2013 Oscars with the Les Mis movie cast and sings with the Grammy-nominated and Tony-winning Broadway Inspirational Voices Choir. Julie Fogg is from Seattle, but has migrated to San Francisco via New York, Denmark, and Illinois, where she earned an MFA in acting from Northern Illinois University. Julie is a certified associate teacher in Fitzmaurice voice work and has been an adjunct professor with Manhattanville College teaching voice and speech and acting. 
She founded Vital Voice Training with Casey in 2014 to bring to, to bring voice work to a larger audience. Their mission is to create a new paradigm for effective communication and start to change how we talk to each other, how we listen, and how we collaborate to help everyone understand the power of their voice. That's a mouthful, but it's amazing. In our conversation, we talk about unlocking the power of your voice, using your voice and body as a physical, mental, and emotional instrument, authenticity, and specifically what functional authenticity means. We talk about their book, The Authenticity Code, and we talk about identity, expression, and connection, and so much more. You guys can follow Casey and Julie on Twitter at vital underscore voice and Instagram at vital voice training. And you can check out their book, The Authenticity Code, on their website, www.vitalvoicetraining.com backslash authenticity code. They are also doing small group courses that they just started. So you can find details on that on their website as well. And they also have a podcast called Voice Is which is available on all podcast platforms, which you can check it out. All right, you guys, I'm so excited to share this conversation. Here we go. Hi, Casey and Julie. Welcome to the Money Isn't Scary podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here. Hi, Megan. We are excited. So excited to be here and talk to you about this. Yay. So I want to start by having you guys tell the audience a little bit about yourselves and your mission in the world. And since I, I did, this is my first time interviewing two people, take as much time as you need. <laughs> <laughs> Julie, do you want to tell the origin story or shall I? Um, how about you go ahead? <laughs> we like to switch off. You know, the, the origin story is so fun to tell. So Julie and I are both professional actors in background. I uh, was in the musical theater world. Julie was in the quote unquote straight theater world, which is a weird way of saying plays. And we <laughs> met, <laughs> we met in 2013 at an affirmation aerobics class like you do all of these dance moves and you say things like I can feel my power at the same time while you're punching and uh the woman who ran that class was also running a goal setting program and we sort of clocked each other across this crowded room as we were saying our goals out loud and had that moment of like oh she's cool and also we're really similar so we ended up having uh coffee together. And then we ended up starting a goal setting group together with a few other women. And then it was the, the, the progression to let's start a business together happened so naturally. It was weird. And especially because neither of us had ever started a business before. I mean, when you're a theater person, you sort of are naturally a little bit of a small business owner because you are your own product, but we had never sold products to other people. So that was a really exciting thing. And the the core of vital voice training is about questioning what the world tells us that leadership and confidence look and sound like. There is a standard that has been set in the public speaking and communication coaching and executive presence coaching industry that really looks a whole lot like do your most credible imitation of a middle-aged white man, no matter who you are. <laughs> and frankly, for most people, that doesn't work very well. It doesn't feel good and it's not honoring the kind of world that we wanna create for the future. So we take our acting training and our insatiable curiosity about human communication and we bring it to our clients and we help private clients 
step into their most embodied, confident voice, and we help organizations develop communication cultures that support those strong, authentic, embodied voices and, and provide a place for them to exist because you can't have one without the other. Fascinating. How about you, Julie? Um, I feel like that, that covered <laughs> the majority of the lion's share of it. Um, I would say that, that one thing that's really unique about how we work is we take into consideration the whole human being. So oftentimes, and I was going to say women, but actually, as Casey was talking, I was remembering that our first clients were, were men as we got into this, um, this way of acknowledging that your voice is it's your physical instrument, it's your thoughts, it's your breath, it's your emotions, it's every single conversation you've ever had in your entire life leading up to this point. It's very, very complex. And then that complexity exists in the world as we have it, which has its structures that favor certain individuals over others. So it's this really fascinating interplay. And Casey and I are both kind of ridiculous in how much we want to go in and untie that string of what is this? Well, how does A lead to B? What gets in the way? How do we maneuver around that? And also create models that allow for that. Uh, I call it breathability. So you have models that incorporate the movement and the, the motion of all of these things because in, with voice and communication, nothing is static. Balance isn't a static point. We interviewed somebody on our podcast who gave us the sentence, balance is a verb. And I think we work as a verb with people. Yeah. yeah, well, it's, we were just saying before I press required, how interesting it is, you guys, it's the same common theme that, I, that you guys work with and that I am trying to, to um, put out into the world as well. Like this, this concept of like unpacking those beliefs and all the stories that we've told ourselves that are preventing us from, I say from like being our best selves, which seems a little generic, but, it, but from even standing up for ourselves, from using our voices. And it's just so interesting how we kind of look at it in different lenses. You're actually looking at it from the actual voice component and communication component of it. I look at it through the lens of money, but it's the same underlying stories. And, and concepts that we're trying to piece through. So I'd love for you guys to talk a little bit about what a voice coach is, what do they do and how would they, how would you help somebody like myself? I think there's a general perception. I know that I came into this thinking, you know, a voice coach, I only need a voice coach if I'm going to be a singer and I'm the absolute worst singer ever. So why would I do that? But that's not the case. And so I love the, the, the ultimate purpose of, or the underlying purpose of why you guys got into this business. Um, so I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about what you do and how you what, do it. What we do is really quite extensive in its breadth, but I will say for me, it's about connecting the voice back to the body because in our culture, we really live neck up. That's from being on video, that's from, it's safer to live neck up. We don't have to access the parts of ourselves that feel and whatnot. Like I said, emotions are a part of this and emotions are the big bad word that we try to leave out of the workplace. But the difference when somebody is talking, when they're truly connected to their body and they're connected to their breath and they're speaking on an exhale is night and day in terms of power. And it's not the kind of power that's bestowed. It's the kind of power that comes from within 
and makes an impression. So that's, that's always my underlying mission. How do we do that? And of course, with that interplay, there's an interplay of your core values, who you want to be. There's the interplay of what society has told you to be. There's navigating double bind after double bind after double bind. So, so we can't get to that place of just being able to drop into your body, drop into your voice again, without acknowledging all of these different obstacles that come. So what does that look like when you're working with a client? Like, where do you start? How do you kind of dive into that, to the, the real deep, juicy stuff? The, the annoying do- answer is that it depends on the client. <laughs> I mean, we, you know, we've been working now for, for over seven years and we have our process, but I think where I love to start is first of all, laying out that complexity of the voice of everything that goes into making your voice yours, the physical components, you know, how your unique anatomy is shaped. We all have the same anatomy, but it's all shaped a little differently. And we use it differently based on our tension patterns. Things like, uh, how do your thoughts become speech? Are you an introvert who needs to think about what you're saying before it comes out of your mouth? in order to feel the most powerful and the most comfortable, or are you an extrovert who actually prefers to work out your thoughts verbally? Neither of those things are good or bad. They just are, they are our preferences. And sometimes we land in environments that support our preferences. And sometimes we land in environments that are incredibly against our preferences. And so that then brings us to the emotions and the stress and how we navigate those tension points. So, so it's laying out the complexity and then it's like bringing it back to, okay, now who are you? Like where, what are all of the different things that have affected your voice over the years? Because as Julie already said, every conversation you've ever had from the time you were a tiny baby learning how to make a noise and have somebody come running to feed you or comfort you to the conversation you had your boss with your boss when your boss said, you don't seem very comfortable in meetings and I'd like you to work on that, right? All of those things go into how your voice has developed over the years. And we talk a lot about the difference between your habitual voice and your quote unquote natural voice, right? Your, your mm-hmm. habitual voice is the voice that you've built over a lifetime. What habits are we trying to get underneath and then give you options, give you options to play with the incredible breadth of expression that we all have inside of us. All of us have, you know, on a purely physical level, we have vocal range that we don't use. We have volume that we don't use, but on an expressive level, the palette is almost unlimited if you just learn that it's there. And then you can make choices that serve you in different environments. Yeah, I think that's so interesting when you think about it. And and I think ultimately too, when part of the work that you're doing with clients has to do with confidence, because if you're working with a lot of women, we've never been, we were just saying this before, we've never been taught to use our voice and we've always been taught to be good little girls. Right. And, and that's just, I don't know, that's, I, I think things are starting to change with the next generation of, of kids, but but that's how I was. I was always taught not to question authority, not to, you know, to keep everything to myself almost And so I think that must have to be a big barrier for a lot of your clients first coming in to work with you guys, I assume, right? That's there, there's a lot to work through there. And and I would argue that that is a way of teaching you how to use your voice. It's teaching you how to use your voice in a way that's small, in a way that's nurturing, in a way that prioritizes everyone else's comfort often over your own. We talk a lot about feminine coded language in our work and, and the 
extra criticism and scrutiny that feminine coded language gets. Sorry, Julie, that was my soapbox for a minute, but I want to throw it to you. <laughs> no, no, that was, I'm, I'm so glad for that opportunity for that soapbox because it is, it is, it is a factor because when you said confidence, what Casey and I have come to is what, what is confidence? Because the definition is very external. When people say, I want to look confident, well, what does that mean? And when you press people to get really specific, we go back to that model of the middle-aged white guy. And that's not, when you, and when you dig deeper, that's not even the model that people respond to the most. Yeah. It's just what has been held as this mythical thing above our heads. And what we see with women is all of that messaging to stay small, look out for everybody else. It often becomes a liability caveat, liability, not 100% because you're still expected to do it when you come into leadership roles. Mm -hmm. For women, being liked is more important than being competent. For men, mm -hmm. it's the opposite. So women are constantly having to, to navigate these things. So when you're talking about confidence, well, confidence is I would just speak over everyone in the meeting. Well, did you grow up in a household that told you interrupting was the worst thing you could do? Well, then you're going to have a little bit of, of pushback in. So how do we access underneath to find what you really want to do in that meeting is I want to be the one who's in charge. Well, what does in charge mean? How does that work? So you can develop those skill sets. So you're coming internally to this instead of imitating somebody else's outsides. Well, and this is, this is another kind of part of the double bind game with women, because again, part of the origin story of vital voice training, we started our company in the midst of what I now call the great moral panic over vocal fry of 2014. So everybody was talking about how annoying vocal fry was. Now, if you don't know what vocal fry is, vocal fry is that like, it's like that Kardashian sound. I mean, this is actually a specific subset of vocal fry that's like really recognizable, but vocal fry can come from lots of different anatomical ways of using the voice. It can also come from artificially lowering the natural pitch of your voice to appear more authoritative. So if I'm a, a woman and I have, you know, maybe a naturally higher pitch range, but I've been told that when I speak in my natural voice, I sound too girly. So I need to, I need to go into my lower register. And eventually I go lower and lower and lower and lower until I no longer can fully phonate using my vocal cords. And that's also vocal fry. And now I'm penalized for sounding dumb and girly. So, so much of the advice out there for women of how to appear confident or how to appear authoritative involves imitating a male model of confidence and authority. So we've been really deep diving lately on the, the whole thing about don't stop saying just uh, and stop saying sorry. And really examining it from a lot of different lenses because again, we penalize feminine coded language and we ignore the fact that it's useful in certain contexts. Even the word like, the much maligned valley girl like is a useful word. It is a grammatically versatile word. And this is what's so fascinating about our work is that we, again, insatiable curiosity, we can dig and dig and dig and dig to get to the core of where this advice is coming from and why it's not working for you and why it's so frustrating when you've been told, just do this and you'll appear confident. And then you do it and people are like, God, stop being so aggressive. You're so cold. Why are you, you know, it, 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 these double binds, it's impossible no matter what you do. So one of the things that we like to say is when, when the game is rigged, uh, the, the game is no longer playable. You can't, you can't play a game that's rigged against you. It doesn't mm -hmm. serve you. It, if it's unwinnable, stop playing the game. 
Yeah, that is fascinating. And I love it. And I think, I think this is actually, I wanted to get to this next, but this is such a, a great transition into it. Like it gets down to the concept of authenticity. Mm. So being truly you, instead of being who you think you should be or who you think somebody else thinks you should be. And that's where the confidence aspect that you were just talking about, Julie, comes into. I mean, I think confidence, like when you define confidence, we're looking at, at, at external definitions of confidence. And I, I was just referencing earlier, you know, you see all these memes and Instagram posts and things like that. And I think it's all other people almost projecting what they think that the perception, the almost, I guess, I guess I'm not explaining this the right way, but, but they're people projecting what they want the outside world's perception of them to be versus what they really and truly are themselves. So let's talk a little bit more about authenticity, how you guys define authenticity and how you work with somebody to find their true authentic voices. So with authenticity, we spent last summer when COVID hit, we went into a deep, deep rabbit hole of exploring authenticity because every time we tried to nail down a definition of it, we came up to a roadblock. Well, what about this? What about this? Again, movable models, models with motion in them. So before we dive into what we landed on as the definition, the lens of coming to this is as an actor. So an actor approaching a role, you have to find the role within you. You don't go searching outside of yourself for the role because people contain so many multitudes. And that multitudes for us, that is the core of authenticity. So it's not a fixed point because it's you plus your given circumstances. And that authenticity is going to change Think about you spend time with different people or relationships, romantic relationships, bring out different parts of you. You talk to your boss very differently than you talk to a puppy. So those things are inevitable. There is, and the more static we try to make it and standardize it, the more we distance ourselves from the true magic of authenticity. So we were trying to work with that idea of the given circumstances plus you to create a definition, to introduce the idea that authenticity is not an individual pursuit. It is a team sport. It does require participation of more than just yourself. So there's an aspect and you, you hit upon it, Megan, in, in your talking about it, that aspect of how do I want to be seen and how do I feel on the inside? Yeah. And so often the, the tension points that our clients experience happen in that, in that distance between, I want to be seen as X, but I feel Y I want to be seen as confident, but I'm feeling imposter syndrome, or I want to be seen as powerful, but no one will listen to me. Or, uh, you know, you can go on and on. This is the space where we get to explore and, and the, you know, we have all these kind of unhelpful definitions of authenticity, and we lay them out in the book that we wrote called The Authenticity Code, Behind the Fable, Failures, and Future of Authenticity at Work. And we will tell you how to get that book for free at the end of the episode. Um, awesome. So sort of three models that most people seem to fall into. There's the one true self model, which is like, I am the same person in all circumstances. And that's just not even something to aspire to, because as Julie already said, we have different means of expression and modes of, of behavior and personality, depending on who we are with different people in our lives. And then there's another model that says like, authenticity means that I am unfiltered. 
you get all of me all the time. However I'm feeling, like whatever my truth is in the moment, that it, and me expressing that in the world, that is authentic. Well, that kind of authenticity is possible, but only for people with an enormous power and privilege. There are people for whom that kind of authenticity will get you fired. It will get you uh, in danger. Like it could literally get you killed, that kind of authenticity. And then the third kind of authenticity that we explored was like this intentional authenticity, aspirational authenticity, where I imagine my best self and I work towards being that in the different environments that I'm in. And that, that can, I think, be a beautiful way of approaching authenticity depending on whether or not your environment supports that and how far away you feel from who you are with what you want to be. And I think that where that kind of authenticity goes wrong is when it starts to feel like an ill-fitting costume or like a commercial that you have to keep running on a loop and you can never let your guard down and be that unfiltered self. So there are sort of problems with all three of those things. And what we ended up coming up with is what we call um, functional authenticity, which acknowledges the complexity of this. It acknowledges the power structures and bias that we all experience. And it kind of gives a model for taking action. So functional authenticity is how do I more often show up as the person I want to be? And how do I increase the probability that other people see me clearly? So you'll notice that all of that is like, how do I do it more often? How do I increase the probability? Like, because it's not, you can't go for perfection here. There's no end point to authenticity and there's no, I get it right or I get it wrong. It's just continued experimentation. When coming in on this idea that we exist in systems, what we discovered with authenticity and diving into it, it's very often code, which is how we ended up on authenticity code, to solve all of these problems will just be your authentic self. And when that happens, and when you're still living in structures that have different power dynamics, what ends up happening is you are expected to intuit the rules. So just be, just be yourself, just be authentic isn't good advice when you're in an environment that clearly does have established rules, just doesn't want to admit to it, which is something that we actually see a lot in Silicon Valley. So I find it so interesting. What happens when you are working with somebody who, you know, might be going through like a life transition or, you know, I'm a mom, I have two young kids and I have struggled in the last couple of years to even define like who I am. So what would you say in a situation like that, where you feel like, you know, how do I be my true authentic self when I don't even know who that is right now? I can speak to that. <laughs> I went through a really big transition shortly after my 40th birthday that was very much dismantling everything I thought I was. I was only slightly more prepared for it because I, again, that whole thing that it's you plus your given circumstances. So I've had the experience of being in an unfamiliar version of myself before, but that doesn't make it easier. And I think what it does is it forces you to drop the habits that have given you certain results of communication, it, which makes you feel very vulnerable because one of the ways we keep ourselves safe is using the mirror of society of other people around us to kind of check our own behavior. Is this normal? Is this not? And when you're going through those transitions, those mirrors are trying to turn it into a hall of mirrors. It's all <laughs> kinds of 
wacky. So some of it's, you know, that kitten poster just hang on. (laughs) And, And some of it is a really rich time to get to examine what's meaningful to me as now me to really go back and, you know, prune your core values. Is there stuff that I've been adhering to that no longer is important to me? It's, it's, it's a really great opportunity. Um, The discomfort of that, we, we have, we work with a lot of other people um, that are in either in the coaching industry or tangentially related. So there's lots of potentials for guides through that. I just, the, the boiling it down to a single message is I believe that familiarity is the hill people will die on. Oh God, yes. Yes, for many, many reasons, this has been coming up a lot lately. And unfamiliar feels like danger and it's not. I think this is such a timely discussion too, as we emerge from this, you know, period in world history, not just our nation's history. I mean, I I was talking to somebody the other day about, our post pandemic selves and what we've gone through in the last 18 months, if it hasn't changed you on some level, you haven't been paying attention. Like what I, I, we are, we are profoundly changed. We have experienced things individually and collectively as a society that have shifted the very foundations of what we understand to be true. And as Julie already said, like that is a time that can feel very fraught. It's also a time when we can build things that are new and better. We can challenge our old ideas about what we thought was true. Uh, there's, we have a good friend, Cat uh, O'Leary, and both of us are, I just turned 39. Yesterday was my birthday. So I started this 40 before 40 list and she's got, she's got another project that she's doing. And, and I love her project. Her project is she's written down 40 truths about herself, things she believes to be true about herself. And she's spending the next year exploring whether or not they're still true. And it's like, some of them are really simple. Some of them are like, I don't like Ted talks. And like, she went and watched a bunch of Ted talks and she's like, turns out some Ted talks are awesome. Like, Though I think there, there's so much room for exploration when we take it out of like, oh God, identity crisis. And we go into, okay, what's like, what's like iOS 4.7 of my personality? <laughs> like, yeah. it's okay to upgrade. It's okay to shift. It's okay to, again, to, to broaden your container, broaden your means of expression, broaden your ideas about what you thought was true about yourself and what you thought was true about the world, because that's how we build better things than used to be in the world. And it's okay to grieve that lost self too. And that's, that's again, this part of the whole person. It doesn't have to be just because something is good or has a silver lining doesn't make the shitty parts less shitty. These, these dualities, that is part of human nature. I can both be very excited for a future with great potential and absolutely devastated that the self that I, I thought I was doesn't exist anymore. Well, it's living in that gray area, right? Yep. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. It's just like, this is everything that I think, like I, I grew up, I'm, you know, this, I'm, I'm in now in recovery, but I grew up as a perfectionist and uh-huh. <laughs> it's a process. It's a never ending process to, to, to challenge that. But I think of the world as black and white. I'm either this or that, but no, it's, it's like all these different 
thousand different shades of grays that are in the middle. And it's like sitting in that messy middle. That is the most uncomfortable, but I, but like the most challenging for me for personal growth reasons. Mm. Um, there was a couple of things that you had said. I just wanted to comment. So the first is, I mean, you were talking about being in the pandemic. I mean, I think and I had this conversation with my husband a number of times. I think that being in that situation where there is true fear out there in the world, so much uncertainty, so much that we don't know, right? About like the, the bigger world as we know it. And then also in our own personal lives. And I think that that really gave people the chance to be, to show their true selves more than they ever probably did. I mean, you think about it in the microcosm way, like now you're on Zoom videos with your kids and your dogs and all this stuff, right? So <laughs> they show you who you really are because that was a part of the world that was cut off before that. But in general, I mean, your real self is coming up. Like you may not even know, I, I, I had anxieties in there that I didn't know about. I had no idea because when have you ever been in the, faced in a situation where we have a world health crisis, right? Like how have you, you don't know what the way you will react or certain parts of you until you've been through something like that. So I think that's, that also is, was, has been, and I don't want to say was, cause it's, we're still, you know, yeah. coming out of it, but a very eye-opening experience in terms of like getting to know ourselves. And for me, I mean, you guys were just saying that, you know, this coming out the other side of this, I started this podcast in the pandemic. I had no, I, I think what made me, want to do this was just kind of this continual frustration that I'm not voicing my opinions. I'm not putting myself out there. I am staying small. And I also have my own issues with money and I want to figure out a way that I can help other people while also, while also going on my own, own personal growth journey and trying to challenge myself in that way. So I think it's true when you think, when you talk about authenticity, it's this constant kind of cycle and we're always changing based on like the world, the world around us and the different, I guess, input, I want to say like, or, or the, the different, the different aspects, the different challenges, the things that get put at us. And I think that it's, it really gives us a true, a solid perspective to be able to look at who we are and again, grieve, like, uh, yeah, I might've been a different person. I might've been a lot more, <laughs> a lot more relaxed 10 years ago than I am <laughs> now, but that doesn't mean that I can't work with what I have today. Yeah. This idea that we have to have completed the journey to teach the journey to me is really backwards. I actually think people on the journey are better teachers, both because you have the motivation to keep going and keep exploring. And also because you don't get too far ahead of people because masters of their craft come out. I mean, this is the whole thing of enlightenment. Enlightenment, it's one word and you'll know it when you see it. You, your, your whole <laughs> lifetime, will, that, that's kind of what happens to people who are so far at the end of their journey. They can't remember the steps they had to take at the very beginning to get to this simple truth. So in, in regards to that, I think that that's, those are again, two truths that are excellent together. I want to help people with my flashlight that I've been using and I am also on the same journey. Yeah, I think it's this, you know, you, you just kind of hit the nail on the head. I think, I mean, it's, it's this idea, you said enlightenment, like as if it's something that we can all of a sudden check the box and we got yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, like, so many of us expect to have these like 
Elizabeth Gilbert eat, pray, love experiences that mm-hmm. are going to be like, it's one big thing that's going to just change us. And we're going to be so different. And we're going to be a completely changed person when we come home from that trip, but we're not, I mean, mm. let's we're just not, it is this constant, constant evolution and like waking up every day and being like, okay, who am I today? What do I like today? What do I want to do today? Some days I, you know, like it just depends. It just, every day is different. And you, it's, I think it's sort of an evolution and working with that over time and dealing with those challenges over time and, and um, really giving yourself the opportunity to, to step outside yourself and have a, and perceive yourself from the outside looking in. And this is a perfect kind of illustration of how practice works, how rehearsal works. When you're trying to make a big change, or you're trying to explore the boundaries of who you are, or you're figuring out like, what the hell is next? Like, who am I right now? It's those small strategic moments that happen. Those, those little experiments, those you know, that, that time sitting in the meeting where you have an idea and you're like, today, I'm just going to say it. And you do, and you don't die, even though you might feel like you're going to die before you say the thing we, we build courage. We build confidence. We build power via daily practice via all of those individual small moments. And we don't need that giant transformational, you know, radioactive spider bite turning you into Spider-Man to like suddenly find those things. It, it does take that iteration and, and huh, girl, fellow recovering perfectionist here, it takes failure too. And not being, uh, not being broken by failure, not being, not, not declaring defeat because you've spoken up and it hasn't gone well, you know, well, maybe it didn't go well this time. Maybe it'll go better next time. Yeah. Can we talk about that for just a second? I w- I'd love to dive in a little bit more on um, this fear of failure mm. and how, you know, when you, when your experience working with women, I mean, that stops so many of us from even starting. And I, again, you know, starting the podcast, I was debating, I was going back and forth. I'm like, this is something that I want to do. I want to do it. I want to put it out there, but I don't know. I can't do it. I can't, not even that I can't do it. It's that I can't market myself. I can't put it out on social media because what are people going to think of me? Because people have this perception of me and I have to keep, I have to almost play that role for them in my mind. It's all in my mind, of course, mm-hmm. my mind's <laughs> one that's messing everything up here. But, but at the same time, it's like, we don't want to be, we don't want other people to see us fail. And I'm realizing that when I finally kind of crossed that hurdle and just started, I'm stumbling, I'm falling. I don't, you know, at the beginning, I had no idea what I'm doing. I still don't know. I'm learning as I go to um, Julie's point earlier, but I think it's the fact that like you start, that is for me, that's kind of like the, the being brave aspect of it. Like I would rather just start and do something. And if I can just, you know, make a difference in three different people's lives, cool, I've done my job and then we'll see what happens with it. But I think the, such a hurdle for women is this, is this fear of failing. And it's not even so much the failure itself. It's that other people will see us fail. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is again, where systems come in and 
because the truth is to master a skill or to make any progress, the, the success is built on the failures. It's actually made of the raw ingredients of the failures. You can't avoid that because to know what to do differently to make it right, you have to have gotten it wrong. You can't be psychically predictive of everything. And this has been lost because there really is a consequence for women failing. This, you know, the, you've heard the term the glass cliff about putting women in CEO positions only when the company's about to go under to push them off. Um, and how to reconcile those things. Some of that is on the shoulders of society to kind of change our relationship with failure. I, I truly don't know how this culture became like a pointing and laughing at people stumbling and falling. I don't think it's the case across the board, but I think it's all of our deepest fears come true. Mm. But to get richness, complexity, and, and really develop ideas, you have to, you absolutely have to see how it responds in the real world. And some of that will be quote failure. Yeah. But again, going back to things we can't define, if you've tried to put your finger on what failure would mean, I would guarantee it would be a, not as scary as the word failure. <laughs> right, let's quantify that. Yeah, I was talking um, with my dad the other day uh, about a friend of theirs who refused to get vaccinated and then got COVID and now he's in the hospital. And my dad said to me, he's like, I just wish that, you know, when, when something like that happens, that like, you know, if, if they do recover, like that they would stand up and say, you know, maybe, maybe everybody should get the vaccine. Like they should admit that they were wrong. And I was like, you know, dad, that would be great if that would happen. But like, I think people are so afraid to admit that they've been wrong. And if, if we could teach everyone to, when presented with better evidence, when you change your mind or when you grow your thinking or when you evolve your thinking to say, I have evolved my thinking on that. I used to believe this and now I believe this. I used to think this and now I've been presented with evidence and I see that it's clearly this. Like, A, we should learn how to do that. I think that that's part of the failure thing, failing publicly is like the ability to say, I was wrong. I got this wrong and now it's different. And for us as a, as a society to see that not as failure, but as learning and iteration. Um, and the other thing that I want to say about failure is that, and, and we, we were having this conversation literally yesterday with a client who's about to do a big, huge keynote speech. Failure is not an end point for most people in most circumstances. Obviously, sometimes you can fail and it can be your end point. You know, some people fall off a cliff and die, but like, for most of us, for most circumstances, failure is not an endpoint. It's a fork in the road. And sometimes the fork in the road takes you down a path you could have never imagined. And it's better than you could have ever imagined. Yeah, it's true. It's, I think viewing it in that light, right? Again, this goes back to the, the black and white. Like it's not, it's not always this or that. Yeah. It, there's a lot of different nuanced things we don't even know about that, that it could present opportunities for. One of the things you just said was, you know, how failing publicly, whatever that failure, you know, whatever your definition of failure is, it's, it's not really failure. I mean, it's all about learning and, and, you know, moving through and challenging and all of that stuff with ourselves. But I think so much of that and again, we talked about this earlier, is just embedded in us from culture. I mean, mm -hmm. we were brought up that it has to be black or white. Like it has to be 
perfect or it's not worth doing in the first place. And I think the more that we start to change, to shift that narrative, to shift those beliefs. I mean, I, again, I think that like that's happening in future generations, but I think us at that stage, you know, I'm 37. And I think that we're kind of in this, it's a very unique place for women at this stage where we're brought up from parents who were not doing this kind of work. And so I think the stories and the things that we learn from them and, you know, not necessarily processing things in a healthy way as they, as we work, as we experience them as kids affects who we are now. And so it's the work is on us now to work through it and make those changes. So we're not uh, continuing those, those trends with the next generation, but culture has so is ingrained in us and it has so much to do with the way that we perceive the world when we walk outside. I also think that something tangential to what you're saying, failure is an action, not an identity. Yeah. Mm. Well, and back to this idea of like, stop saying sorry. Like that's something that women hear all the time. And like that it is true that some women, because we've been socialized this way, apologize for, for things that they don't need to apologize for. But sometimes failure involves causing harm to other people. And in that case, I think a lot of people need to apologize more. Like we need to learn how to truly apologize for the harm that we perpetrate. Mm -hmm. And that it's, it's that the ability to say I was wrong, the ability to say, I hurt you and that's not okay. And the ability to say, and here's how I'm going to attempt to do better are all things that we it's a process that we can go through when we have failed. If our failure has caused harm, if our failure has affected someone else's life, we should have accountability to each other as a community. That's important. And to, back to Justin, sorry, taking those, as the, again, those standards that we think if we adhere to them, we will avoid conflict. I will say I sent a text message to a friend without just and sorry or an exclamation point, And I haven't heard from her in two weeks because she <laughs> probably thinks I'm mad at her. So those things, that's real. We are trying to suss out the communication underneath. You can't just remove the words and remove the, the the concept or the, you know, the dynamic that the reason why we use them in the first place. <laughs> yeah, it's so fascinating. Cause I use the, I use just all the time. Like, Oh, can you just in it for, you know, babysitter? Oh, Hey, can you, can you just come by and watch the boys for, I don't know, just three hours or something. It's like, no, like, I'm, can you please come watch the boys for three hours? It's not like I need to dance around it or make it softer. Like what's the, because they're, they're, I'm hiring them to do a job and they're happy to do the job. Do you know what I mean? It's just so, it's so interesting how we close ourselves off or we try to, I don't know, we just, it, it, I guess it all goes back to the voice thing, right? We just want to minimize ourselves. I, I don't see anything wrong with how you just communicated with your babysitter. I, I think that that softening that we do is, it's, it's very human. It's very natural. Like, I was having this conversation with my husband. He runs a startup and we were talking about this concept of just as he makes requests of his, the people who work for him. He'll often say something like, do you have time to do blah, 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 blah. Or could you just uh, put this at the top of your list or something? So there's a softening 
to this thing. He's presenting it to them as if they have an option. Now, really, they kind of have to do what he says because he's kind of the boss, right? So he could ostensibly say to them, drop everything and do this thing right now. But that would make him a dick. Like, mm-hmm. it's okay to strategically soften. Um, it, it's something that we do naturally as human beings. Now, you know, if it's something that you want to experiment if, with, if, you know, somebody who's listening to this wants to experiment with being more direct, that is an experiment that you can run. You can see what it feels like to be more direct in different sets of given circumstances with different people. You might get a great result and it might feel better to you. Awesome start to eliminate just in that way, but don't think about it as an all or nothing. There is nothing wrong with a little strategic softening when it helps you get shit done. And for most women, you're going to actually have a better result with a little bit of strategic softening than you are. If you say to somebody who wasn't necessarily going to respect you anyway, you know, do this thing as opposed to, could you just do this thing for me? Right. There's nothing wrong with strategic softening. That's my soapbox. Well, and my soapbox is this is a uniquely American thing to try and prune ourselves of manners and kindness. <laughs> British culture or Canadian culture. Sorry, sorry, sorry. We, we know it as a, as a verbal, not quite a verbal tick, but it's, it's not there to say I am apologizing for myself. It is, it is manners. And I've been really fascinated with the function of manners and Americans absolute <laughs> fixation on manners are weakness. You know what I mean? <laughs> that is so interesting. You were just saying, Casey, like when, when we saw, you know, strategic softening and there's a time and a place for, for, using that, you know, maybe it's, it, it makes sense to do it in certain settings, like with the babysitter, but what about, what about in professional settings? And that got me thinking about, you know, I'm curious your thoughts, like working with women versus men in a professional setting. And are you, what, what do you see there in terms of challenges for women? I, I see, you know, coming from the corporate world myself, do you see some intimidation there and in, in general, just kind of trends? And if you do, what do you, how do you work with them? And, and what are your general suggestions? I know it's probably person specific, but I'm curious if you ha- see any general trends. I think we, and Casey and I have been talking about this in terms of men versus women, the men that we work with tend to be people, men that also don't fit the masculine model for, for whatever reason, whether it's because they're actually physically smaller or because they're somebody who grew up as the, the person who cooked and, and took care of, of their family. There's all kinds of reasons for that. So, so that those oppressive models hurt all of us. So I guess it t- depends on what direction you're coming from. If you're coming from like the finance industry and you have to go in and you have to actually have a certain skill set that's sort of akin to um, you know, Discovery Channel, Wild Kingdom, how do I play that, that very fundamental power game? That, that's, that is real. So, so those are things we can break down and teach to know that it's not a luck of the draw, but also then once you put those into practice, looking at how they land in your environment and if the environment ultimately will or will not be a place that you can grow and develop. With, With men, it's about finding, this is a huge generalization, but finding comfort in that softness and, and taking away the pressure that in order to speak, they must have something commanding to say. Mm. There, there's a lot of playing with opposites 
mm-hmm. with our clients and playing with, with, you know, what, what are you comfortable with and what are you uncomfortable with and why are you uncomfortable with it? So in a scenario like this, I feel like where I would start would be going back to this idea of what are my given circumstances? Mm-hmm. What are the rules of engagement in this environment? What do I notice? Who are, who is held up in this environment as someone who is a great communicator or a powerful presence? Who is the model that we are all either overtly supposed to imitate or at a, on a subconscious level, we're all imitating this, right? So once we can start to pick out and tease apart those structures, we can start to label them and that allows for choice, right? So if you are in an environment where directness is the way people get heard, or you're in a meeting culture where the only way somebody gets an idea in is if you interrupt, you jump in, you have to actually interrupt and jump in in order to get your voice heard, then we can practice how to do that. That's just a skill. That's a skill. So, so it's all about label what is possible to label, start to understand what's in your control and what's outside of your control, because there is so much to communication that is outside of your control and man alive, is that hard for our clients to deal with? Because our clients, of course, as one might expect are perfectionists. Often they are type a, they are like super into personal development. They want to take all the responsibility on themselves and they want to fix it when they get it wrong. And sometimes you can't because you don't have ultimate control over how other people see you. You have control over certain parts of the communication process. And this kind of brings us full circle back to this swirling thing that is your voice and this swirling thing that is the culture in which we use our voice. And finding the, where do we have room to play and where do we have agency is the really, really fun part of our jobs is empowering people to find more agency and find more possible choices in how they show up. One of the things we've been talking about, um, you brought up the gray area through all of this, the gray area is fascinating to us and we cannot solve the gray area, but we can put guideposts in it because it's gonna be different for everyone. That's why it's the gray area. So I think also being able to embrace those nuances is really what's missing in communication in general and very, very critical to when we're trying to to dance these delicate lines in our workplaces. Yeah. And not only communicating with other people, as we were just talking about, but also in the communicating with yourself and the way you talk to yourself, like finding that comfort in the gray area. And I, and that's a lot of the stuff that I talk about on the podcast, um, because that has been one of the most challenging things for me over the last year or so. Yeah. This is, I could talk about this stuff for (laughs) hours, you guys. So could we. (laughs) I know. So before we wrap up, I ask all of my guests the same question. I think it's fascinating. If you could leave the audience with one piece of advice, what would it be? I would say one of our favorite phrases, and it is, it's so key to everything and it's easy to remember and it's fun and it's empowering. It is the mantra, let your butt be big. (laughs) <laughs> it is both a directive and the, the, because the more, the more you focus on not contracting, especially, you know, in your butt, 
it's it influences the voice, but it also gives that subconscious message. I'm allowed to take space. I'm allowed to sit on furniture. I do not need to be polite to my chair. It is the essence of gravitas. So let your butt be big. That's awesome. <laughs> and and I will add, uh, fear is the cost of admission to an interesting life. So embracing a little bit of discomfort, embracing a little bit of fear, recognizing that again, most of the time, fear and discomfort won't kill you. And a lot of the really, really cool things that are, are part of your dream life or your best self are on the other side of a little bit of discomfort and a little bit of fear. Um, then you can make the choice to step into that, that bravery to face it. Because there's no such thing as fearless. There's no such thing as fearless. No, no I hear that. That's the whole point of money isn't scary. I mean, it's <laughs> It's not that it, it's not that it isn't scary. It's just that, that we're trying to work through that fear. Yes. So, Cheers. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys. All right. So please tell everybody how they can find you and follow the work that you're doing in the world. This is your chance to promote yourselves and everything that you're doing. Well, so I, I promised that I would tell you how to get, uh, to get our book. So if you go, our web, our website is vitalvoicetraining.com. Uh, B-I-T-A-L-V-O-I-C-E-T-R-A-I-N-I-N-G.com. If you go to backslash authenticity code, you can get all of our stuff for authenticity. And the other thing that I would like to mention, we did our first group course this year and it was just, oh my God, it was everything we wanted it to be. It's a small group. It's live via Zoom. It is not a pre-recorded watch at your own pace, do video courses. We wanted interaction with people and we found a cohort of the coolest freaking women on the planet. We're, we're doing that again in the fall. It's called Power Play Beyond Executive Presence. And, uh, and we would love to see you there. If you're interested in the course, it's vitalvoicetraining.com backslash the course. And that'll tell you all about it. Um, oh, and you can also follow us on social media. So uh, it's on Twitter, we are vital underscore voice. On Instagram, we're vital voice training. And, uh, and yeah, we would love to continue the conversation with everybody. Julie, wait, tell us, tell them about our podcast. <laughs> oh yes. We, we, we have a podcast. We're currently on hiatus between season two and season three. It is called voice is, and you can find it on Apple stitcher, uh, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we, we do conversations similar to this, where we just get to deep dive into interesting people and the work that they do. I love it. I love it. That's I'm totally, I actually looked it up and I'm like, I'm going to go back and look through all the old episodes. So awesome. Thank you so much, you guys. This has been such a pleasure. 